Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hey there, High Truth listeners. Today, we're taking you behind the scenes in the operating room. What's the most painful surgery you can possibly imagine? How about cutting and pounding nails into your bones? Ouch, that's got to hurt. According to the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, more than 1.4 million shoulder arthroscopies were performed each year. In the United States, we perform more than 600,000 total knee replacement surgeries, 450,000 shoulder rotator cuff surgeries, and 53,000 shoulder replacement surgeries every year. That sounds like a lot of pain. And it's no wonder that when I published my death diary research, I found out that orthopedic surgeons were the number one in opioid prescriptions. Back in 2016, the average number of opioid pills per bottle prescribed for all doctors was 75. Pain physicians averaged 97 pills per prescription, and general surgeons averaged 123. And to top them all were the orthopedic surgeons at 189 pills per bottle. That's because back then, orthopedic surgeons were giving three-month supply of pain pills as what they considered a service for their patients. I once took care of a 50-year-old woman who took an overdose, very sadly overdosed on Percocets as a suicide attempt. She required admission to the ICU for Tylenol toxicity and liver damage caused by the Percocet, or rather the Tylenol in that Percocet. She survived, and I asked her husband, where did she get all those pills? He told me that he received a bottle of 200 Percocets after his back surgery, but he only needed a few pills and the rest stayed in the medicine cabinet. Since that time, the medical community in all specialties has been promoting safe prescribing. And today we will learn what is happening in the orthopedic world. And now our question of the day. Thank you for the High Truth Podcast. You're really bringing innovative solutions um, to the issues of drug addiction. 
My name is Christy Kottner. I'm a family nurse practitioner and a psychiatric nurse practitioner in Riverside County working at a internal medicine practice. I wanted to find out in the hospital setting, it seems to be a lot of orthopedic cases require a lot of opioids post-surgery. Is there a solution for safe prescribing for this population? Thank you, Christy, for your thoughtful question, and I'm sure you see the post-operative orthopedic patients in your internal medicine practice. I also thank you for the invaluable contribution to the curriculum we developed called Innovations and Smart Approaches in Safe Prescribing, designed for the medical community by Champions of Health, the nonprofit organization of the San Diego County Medical Society. A shout out to Champions of Health. Well, Christy, in order to answer a question about orthopedics, we must talk to an orthopedic surgeon. And I know a fun, skillful orthopedic surgeon who has a podcast of his own called The Ortho Show. Dr. Scott Sigmund is a national and internationally recognized leader in opioid sparing surgery. He operates on broken bones as an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in the knee and shoulder. Dr. Scott Sigmund's bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Sigmund, welcome to High Truths. Oh, Ronit, great to see you again. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great. And the last time I saw you was at a spine conference in Chicago, and you still have that great hair. Hashtag follow the fro. It's still there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> follow the fro. I agree. And I love you. You're like a fun orthopedic surgeon, top of your field, but can also like make it fun and and, and happy and informative. Um, you are an expert in and advertise about opioid sparing surgery. Can you tell us what does that mean? Yeah, well, at the end of the day, you know, I've been in the business for about 30 years and, and you got to make sure your patients are out of pain. Uh, and we're going to use these opioids because they're really inexpensive and they're not that addictive. And obviously, it, that couldn't be further from the truth. And we've recognized the highly addictive potential of opioids. And so what we try to do is we try to avoid the opioids if we can, maintain opioid naivete for as many of our patients as we can. Uh, and, and really, what that means is we use alternatives to opioids, and we can actually take patients safely and effectively through orthopedic surgery now and minimize their exposure to the opioids in the first place. How, how can you do that? I mean, you are literally doing carpentry on the bones. You know, you're sawing and nailing and banging. That's got to hurt. So what we do is we use a combination of things. We call it a multimodal approach. But at the end of the day, what that means is we use a number of different medications that work in different ways. And one of my favorites is liposomal bupivacaine, which is a long-acting form of anesthetic. We all know that Local anesthetics work. The problem is, is that they don't typically work long enough. It might work long enough at the dentist's office or in the doctor's office or in the surgery center. And then they tell you to go home and say, you know, suck it up, but it can really hurt. And so what we've tried to do and what's happened now is these anesthetics work much longer. They can work for upwards of two to three days. So now, for example, like rotator cuff surgery or a total shoulder replacement, we do a nerve block just prior to surgery. An anesthesiologist does that under ultrasound with an FDA-approved product, the liposomal bupivacaine for that block. And patients get, you know, really phenomenal pain relief. So what used to be, you know, for example, rotator is 10 to 12% of patients were opioid persistent after a year after the rotator cuff surgery because it hurt so much. And then they got addicted to the medication. But now they don't take a single opioid pill. It's unbelievable. You literally can take an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair patient, have a nerve block, and not a single opioid pill is required in their post uh, rehab. So it's really remarkable the changes that we've made. 
that really transformed my practice also in the emergency department. I use just last night, as a matter of fact, it's not even just last night, just a few hours ago, <laughs> I was in the emergency department and people come in with back pain and we used to just give them shots of dilated and uh, I give them a trigger point injection that has bupivacaine and uh, it lasts for six hours and they so much better relief. I say it's kind of like doing a dental block. Like, you know, when you go to the dentist and he numbs up your tooth and it doesn't hurt, I'm doing that for your, for your muscle. And you're doing that, uh, you know, in the joints. I like to quote from the CDC, you know, three numbers, six, 13, and 30. Uh, and, and the first number six is if you prescribe 24 hours of narcotics to hundred patients, six out of 100 will still be on opioids at one year. If you give a 10-day prescription of opioids, then 13 out of 100 are still on opioids. And if you give them a months-long supply, a third of those patients are still on opioids. That's how addictive these medications are. And at the end of the day, you know, you and I, we've been doing this a long time, and, and we understand that it was just sort of, this is the medication that you're going to use. It was taught to us. We were told that if your patients are in pain, you're going to get, you know, scores against you from the federal government with your HCAP scores, and you're then going to have a reduction in the payment to the hospital. Good job. And so we were kind of all schnookered within the medical community to use these medications. But now that we've become so much more educated, we have a responsibility to our patients to be safely and effectively go to the emergency room, be diagnosed, be treated, leave with out opioids, same thing for surgery. And so we use these alternative medications. So we talked about liposomal bupivacaine. There's another medication we use routinely now called Engezo, which is IV meloxicam, which is an intravenous form of an anti-inflammatory that provides significant pain relief for upwards of 24 hours. There's Iovera, which is a cryoaxonemesis device where it's a little wand that's filled with liquid nitrous oxide. And a week before a total knee replacement, we will freeze the nerves around the knee that provide the pain sensation after surgery for upwards of three months. The nerves regenerate in a normal fashion, and then that allows for increased pain relief for our patients as well. So it's an all hands on deck. You do some stuff beforehand, then you do a different medication that works somewhere in the body, then you do a different medication in a different part of the body. And there was a recent study line who's a dear friend of mine, he's an orthopedic surgeon in upper state New York, the number one arthroplasty surgeon in upper state New York. And his patients now after total knee replacement are, are averaging no more than 10 uh, prescription pills, which is phenomenal. We were writing prescriptions for 60 pills and refills. And, you know, what I always say, Ronit, the most liberating thing you can do in clinical practice is to become an erring practitioner, right? You're not getting calls about refills. Your patients aren't dying from substance use disorder. Uh, and, and your life is better too, because you can sleep well knowing your patients are cared for, uh, and you're not creating as much of a problem as you are, as you're trying to heal. And your patients are doing better, which is the ultimate thing. I I love the videos that you sent me of this older man who's 24 hours after surgery and he's wiggling his knee around. He just had a knee replacement and, you know, um, it was like, you know, that that pendulum motion of his leg. It's like, are you in pain? And he's like, obviously doing really well. Um, so that's that really is amazing. And I think the medical community um, is when they are given a goal, like we want pain relief instead of being prescribed, you have to do this um, because then you have the amazing innovations that you just uh, 
rattled off and some of them I can't even pronounce, but uh, that's, that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're, it really requires, you know, a village to do this and it has to be a team approach. And, you know, Zeev Kane, who's, who's a dear friend, uh, who's uh, out of the uh, perioperative uh, um, uh, college, describes it uh, as the perioperative home. And, and basically that means that everyone on the team, the nurses, the doctors, uh, administrators, everybody's on the same process of communicating to the patient about how we effectively take you through your surgical intervention while minimizing your exposure to opioids. And patients are so thrilled to this as an option, right? I mean, if you think about it, there's there's most people have a loved one, someone that succumbed to the opioid epidemic in some way. So they're scared of surgery. They're worried about the opioids. So when you provide them counsel and let them know on the front side that you're going to provide care for them in a, in a clear and concise communication, they're very appreciative of that. So um, back when we first met, uh, a study showed that orthopedic surgeons were averaging 189 pills per prescription. You were leading the bunch in 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 medicine and for number of pills. And I think it was again wasn't meant to harm. It was like, hey, you may have pain and here's three months worth of, of medicine. You know, that way if you need them, you don't need them. And then we've learned about the harm. I don't think um, orthopedic surgeons are still doing that. What do you think? Well, I think some are, but I, yeah. I can tell you what we're doing. You know, we, we prescribe five pills, uh, five. And, uh, and we ask wow. the patient and tell the patient, you don't have to take a single one. You don't even have to fill the prescription if you don't want to. And if you don't don't fill it, don't use it because we're going to provide you four or five other medications. Like so, one of the medications that we actually write a prescription for is Tylenol, a thousand milligrams three times a day. And why do we do that? Because on average, people think, well, Tylenol is an over-the-counter medication; it's sort of optional. But Tylenol works exceptionally well for pain relief. So we eliminate the idea of maybe having to take it to say, no, this is a prescription. We anticipate and want you to take it. We also give them the medication meloxicam, which I talked about earlier, which is sort of a, a more a, a Motrin or ibuprofen type pill. It's an anti-inflammatory. And those patients will get five days of that. And then we also give some gabapentin, which helps at nighttime for sleeping only. So that combination, in addition to all the other things that we talked about with the nerve blocks, et cetera, can provide patients that soft cushion through the first three days, which is the worst after surgery. And those patients can do quite well. So really what you're doing is primary prevention in the medical field. You are preventing an addiction and minimizing pain at the same time. And you can have your cake and eat it too. Um, so I think that that's great. Uh, the other thing, we had an episode with um, Dr. Michael Scott. He's president of ERAS, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Is that a technique that you are using? Yeah, we use uh, ERAS protocols for all of our patient interventions as well. And I think that that also creates that communication that's available. So enhanced recovery after surgery is what ERAS stands for. Uh, and we find that that process, you know, you involve the pharmacist, you involve the nursing staff in the recovery room, as well as in the holding area, you involve all the doctors, including anesthesia, as well as the surgeons. Uh, and then that communication across lines really creates a very common theme that allows, uh, you know, really to see improvements for our patients. What about patients who come to you who are already in chronic pain, that they've had, you know, bone on bone and they've been in suffering for a long time from their arthritis and they've been already on um, high dose opioids when they come to your practice? How, do, how are you able to, to manage that? 
So that's a major issue. If you really look at the at the outcome studies that have been done, there was another recent paper that was just posed that that patients that are by uh, Rand Schwarzkopf out of uh, NYU Langone. Uh, hospital for joint diseases, if you're on narcotics prior to your surgical intervention, your outcomes are not going to be as good. And unfortunately, all of the superhero tools that we use to try and reduce your pain in the perioperative window, a lot of these patients maintain on opioids. So it's a difficult, it's a difficult problem. And it's one of those things that you have a conversation with the patient more often than not, if you can try to get them off the medication prior to intervention, that's typically the best. Otherwise the overall outcome for the patient may not be as good. You know, and I want to be clear, you know, I, there's the opioid zealots out there in the world. I am not against opioids across all fronts in the use of, of medicine. I mean, I think that opioids do have their role for patients that do have chronic pain that have been on opioids. It's unfair to say we're just stopping your opioids because early in our, our, our experience with the medical practice that got you on these medications. So they need care. You know, I'm not I'm not in uh, the the care of substance use disorder, but my job is the sort of the prevention of future patients that require or, or would need care for substance use disorder. So I think opioids do have their role uh, for patients in, in the right appropriate you know place. So what I always say, Ronit, is that the 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 best thing that you can do for a patient that has a chronic condition don't start them on opioids because now you've given them two problems and so uh, for sure uh, you know the the opioid addiction that they have will be just as bad as the original knee pain that they had so on the forefront even before surgery there are menus and treatment options that are available for example for osteoarthritis of the knee right so rather than saying oh you're bone on bone arthritis let me give you some opioids we say oh you're bone on bone arthritis we could try the Iovera that we talked about, which acting sort of numbing numbing technique that we do. There's a medication called uh, uh, Zoretta, which from Flexion Therapeutics, which is a long-acting form of corticosteroid, which can provide reliable pain relief for three to six months. Regenerative medicines such as PRP, stem cells, and some of the FDA-approved cell lines that are coming out are going to help as well. I'm also a big proponent of laser. We actually use a, a FDA a cleared class four laser, which is a pulsed laser, which generates as a very powerful anti-inflammatory, which can help to reduce the inflammation and pain of chronic conditions such as osteoarthritis. So we need to educate our providers. We need to educate our patients that there are alternative options for pain, even prior to surgery, much less around the perioperative window as well. That's amazing. Is there, do you have... Uh, or maybe the orthopedic association has that a, kind of a list, a menu of the various options so people could know or even the public could know about, hey, why don't I try um, one of these other techniques? Well, we're really excited. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery has has sort of taken a back stance on this in the past. They haven't really been willing to put out a list of recommended treatments, for example, of osteoarthritis of the knee. Uh, but they felt some pressure and they put together a committee. And, and I believe that committee's recommendations in the upcoming months where they're specifically going to talk about, you know, acu acupuncture or laser treatment, for example, or PRP for regenerative medicine, things like that. So and tell I'm really us what PRP means again. Yeah. So PRP is platelet-rich plasma. And so it's a it's a cellular-based therapy where basically you draw blood from your arm and then you spin it down to a centrifuge. And then those platelets that help to stop you from bleeding also have these growth factors that are associated with them. And those growth factors can to, to be an anti-inflammatory. It doesn't regrow the cartilage. It doesn't make you go from you know bone to bone back to normal knee, knee x-rays from when you were 17. But what it does do is provide relatively long-term pain relief. PRP actually is more effective for pain relief than our 
some of the, the insurance approved items, which we are the gel shots, which is Visco or cortisone shots, et cetera. But for right now, the insurance companies have, have pushed back and have not been paying for these modalities, which is difficult for patients to necessarily be able to afford a patient pay model to pay out of pocket. But there is clear evidence uh, that they work. A lot of the smaller pharmaceutical companies through the standard, more practical FDA approval process are now coming up with really unique ideas uh, for molecules and growth factors and things that are going to help uh, with arthritis, which will one more sort of arrow in our quiver to be able to avoid opioids in the setting of these chronic conditions. So I think most people, when they think of orthopedic surgeon is you you break a bone or need a joint replacement and they come, come to you. Um, I'm wondering if you see in your practice people who have pain from you know their knee and their arthritis and you can do some of these injections and alternative uh, methods to help their pain. Um, if you do that, or is it something that also translates to the primary care setting where maybe you can educate uh, primary care community in these uh, options? I think that you're absolutely, you're spot on. And I think it really is zip code based, you know, certain, certain primary carers want to be able to manage their patients and, and do the process. We sort of, you know, I like to describe myself as the primary care of the musculoskeletal system. Now I, I choose mm -hmm. to take care of the knees and shoulders left and right. Uh, but, you know, we, it, within the realm of those knee and shoulder injuries, uh, I would say probably only about 20 percent of my patients are prescribed surgical intervention. The other eighty percent are going to get all those things that you're talking about. We do try to educate our primary care doctors, but they're also super busy uh, in our community, which is very dense. All those you know important things such as you know hypertension, nutrition, and all the other things that they manage. So, but yeah, we do try to educate them. But most of the MSK non-operative stuff is... And MSK is musculoskeletal for correct. our audience. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. I always remember on my own podcast, you know, I'm the um, host of the Ortho Show podcast. And I always, you know, whenever the guests get on, I always say, listen, my mother is listening. So you have to be able to talk so that she understands that's right. what you're saying. So I apologize. Right. So I think, yeah. I think yeah. my mom is my favorite fan too. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. I love it. Um, that's great. So we we talk about safe prescribing and and you are spot on in primary prevention of of needing of treating pain more effectively with less opioids um and do you also use that safe prescribing when it comes to benzodiazepines and other central nervous system um depressants yeah i've really tried to get away from benzodiazepines altogether because for the listeners i mean when you combine opioids and diazepines that's when it can get really bad uh patients can have significant you know um uh, issues even death can be associated with the mixture of these medications so for me it's five pills of opioids and no benzos and uh that's where we are with all of the other alternative options that are out there Right. And you say that not because you're being mean, I'm only giving you five. It's because you're doing all these other things that give you better pain relief and you don't really need them. Our, our outcomes, the, per, the I, you know, it's funny, a, a lot of doctors sometimes get lost in the, in the outcome. What's it's the MRI that shows that the rotator cuff healed, you know, but for me, it's more about the, the patient's personal experience in the process mm -hmm. of the healing. If you take a look and well, it's harking back to the rotator cuff again, about how painful the rotator cuff used to be. Patients would uh, literally be in a sling for six weeks, sleep in a recliner. Uh, they would get addicted to the medication and it would take them six months to get better. And they would all say the same thing. There's no way I would ever go through that again. Now, when we do this nerve block that we do at the time of the surgery, we give all these other medications out of a sling in four to five days. And we start early physical therapy 
and they have early range of motion and function, the patient experience for what we're doing now surgically is so much better. And we're using, and it's not because we, you know, we're leaving you in pain because we, we're not giving you narcotics. It's because mm -hmm. we figured out all these other ways to take away your pain, get a better experience, and you don't need the narcotics. I think that's amazing. You know, last night, which is actually only a few hours ago, I was in the emergency department and I saw this lady who had, um, on her third spine back orthopedic surgery. Um, and she was coming in and, and kudos to her. She was saying, I'm withdrawing from opioids. She left the last hospitalization being undilated two milligrams every four hours. Her sister was there and saying, well, she was over medicating herself. And so her doctor cut her off. You know, they get scared. Um, and so she came to me in withdrawal and she goes, I know I have a problem with opioids. Can you give me some Xanax? And I said, well, that'll be terrible if I get you addicted to benzodiazepine, then that's even worse and even harder to manage than an opioid addiction. Um, and, but I said, I can help you. And, um, she was in withdrawal and I gave her a dose of Suboxone and an hour later she was a different human being, um, and, uh, put her on that and uh, she needs another orthopedic surgery. So that'll be another challenge when she has another one. But at least we didn't get her started on a new problem when she was asking for that and, and helped her and helped her symptoms. So yeah, kudos, kudos to you. I mean, I, I was on Governor Baker's uh, commission here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to develop a patient access uh, pathway for pain management. And so what was happening, you know, is that our primary care really being inundated with the management of these patients that had chronic opioid addiction. Uh, and they really weren't trained in the process of helping to wean or help patients to, to get off opioids. And so we sat around in this commission over, over about six months and developed a pathway where consultations for primary care doctors with pain management specialists specifically about answering questions for these patients in that hopefully trying to help these doctors be able to not cold turkey these people off opioids because that does not work. And there are many patients that are walking around employed, living their lives you know, on chronic opioids and functioning at a, at a reasonable level. Uh, and so it was a, a highlight of my career to be asked to be a part of that. And it was really quite successful. So we, pr we pr created a lifeline, you know, literally for these primary care doctors to be able to learn about Suboxone, learn about the techniques that are available in helping to manage patients that are looking for a way to, to come off. What's the, what's the most painful orthopedic surgery out there? Or is there such a thing? They all sound painful to me. Yeah, they're all, you know, <laughs> bone pain is... Right. I mean, it's that bone pain is clearly the most most painful thing, although I'm sure uh, women out there that have deliveries and then there's also kidney stones out there. I've had kidney stones. Pain is the worst. I think the, it's I would look at it differently, Ronit. I would say, you know, what is the surgery that you have the least ability to control someone's pain with? Uh, and certain certain surgeries are more painful. It's really hard for people to realize this. But a total knee, for example, is more painful than a total hip replacement. Uh, I would say the most painful uh, uh, things that happen are, are broken bones. And so when you have a fracture with soft tissue da damage, et cetera, and the amount of intervention that's required to be able to take care of that, I think that's typically a very painful intervention. And then, so it's hard to have long, long-term strategies to get them out of the worst of their pain. Uh, so the trauma patients in particular, in particular can be the most difficult to control. And you've had a long 
successful still having a career in orthopedics. Over your career, what's the the newest innovation in the orthopedic field? So there's a lot. There's so I think I would sum it up all into one thing. What's the what's the where's the trend that's going to go forwards with orthopedic surgery is going to be outpatient surgery. Many, many people are really adverse to the idea of going to the hospital to have intervention. They, you know, our emergency rooms basically shut down, but wasn't it amazing? I'm like all the aches and pains and all the things that people go to the emergency room for, nobody was going to during the pandemic. It was really quite remarkable. But I, I would say that the greatest innovation moving surgical interventions, which have always been considered hospital surgeries, move them to the outpatient world into ambulatory surgery centers, where we're going to be able to successfully do major surgical interventions using these opioid alternatives that we've talked about to safely allow you to have surgery, go home the same day, not get addicted to opioids and still have great outcomes. And so even things like awake spinal fusions now at this time, and patients are going home the same day. I mean, it's really quite remarkable, the things that we are able to do now that that we couldn't before. It, you know, when I first started my career, you know, for a total knee replacement, you get admitted to the hospital for three days, and then you went to a rehab hospital for two weeks. And now they're walking out of the surgery center two and a half hours after their knee replacement. So for me, that's the most remarkable. <laughs> that is, that is the very remarkable, right? You have a knee replacement and you walk out the next day. You have spine surgery and you're walking out within hours. That's that's pretty impressive. That it, is it unbelievable. Really is. And so that they say that the you know outpatient orthopedic surgery, for example, about eighty percent of patients by the end of twenty twenty two will be being done in, in outpatient ambulatory surgery centers and a clean, and it makes sense, right? Why would you want to go to a hospital where there's sick people? You know, you're healthy, right? You want to go to a, a place that's clean, people, you know, and go home to a house that's clean but right. the philosophy but you want to be able to take care of yourself too you can you know absolutely you have to make sure you're picking the right patients to have the successful outcome you're not going to take an 85 year old woman who lives by herself uh and do a right. knee replacement on her and send her home the same day she's going to need care so you you're diligent in, in making sure that you're providing good decision making as to which patients are going to be done yeah so what has COVID pandemic done to the orthopedic specialty? More cases, less cases, people delaying their, their surgeries. Um, our, our orthopedic surgeons from the emergency department said their volume hasn't changed. People are still breaking bones. Yeah. So, you know, you know, when, when the pandemic first hit, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm the sought after speaker and, you know, I'm an orthopedic med sports medicine specialist and I'm traveling the country and all of a sudden the pandemic hit and the world did not need a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. I was literally, <laughs> my superhero cape was taken away and I was put on the bench and we Aww. basically sat back and, uh, you know, I'm, I used my laser to help with COVID, which was a whole nother conversation. But what we found was, you know, obviously we were really shut down. But as we rolled into 2021, I would say we were down about 30%. But what we've seen now as we move into the second quarter that we're really pretty much picking back up to speed again and people are moving. We're seeing a tremendous number of the elderly have been vaccinated. They're coming in by droves, you know, for, for pains that they've had for upwards of six, eight, 10 months, yeah. but they were scared to come out. And now that they've been vaccinated, they're coming in. So I think our volume is pretty much back to where we were. I still think there's still a little bit of a slowdown nationally. That's great. And um, you mentioned lasers and you're president of an ortho laser company. And I know you said something about it, but how do lasers, how do you use them in orthopedic cases? 
Yeah, so the laser, you know, is a very powerful anti-inflammatory. We weren't really taught in our medical school curriculum about this. And so therefore, most, you know, U.S. physicians don't have a knowledge base on it, rightfully so. It was really my opioid alternative, you know, hat that I was wearing that I was looking for alternative treatment options. And then laser was presented to me and we started using it. And I was really very impressed. And so the laser, you have to have the right wavelength. And I always say to patients or anybody, I'm like, you know, do you believe in photosynthesis? And everybody says, yeah, of course I believe in photosynthesis, right? The light shines on the trees and the, the leaves grow and all that. Well, I was like, it, well, it shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, as a species living on a planet with a sun that in our deepest genetic code, we would also be sensitive to light. And so, for example, the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, generates ATP, which is the energy. The enzymes that are involved in the production of ATP are actually sensitive to specific wavelengths of light, and that's been well-documented within the basic science literature. And I got so, this orthopedic surgeon talking about plants and biology. I know, it's crazy. And not only that, but <laughs> we use the laser for acute COVID. Now we're using it for chronic COVID. So I was the Wait, principal- Wait, explain. I don't understand. Yeah. You, yeah. You're shooting lasers into the lung or- yeah, I mean, it's a crazy story. So basically the laser we were using was working profoundly on acute inflammation. So if you, if you broke your bone, if you rolled your ankle, if you had a bad sprain, it's really blown up and swollen and bruised. You put it under the laser, it evaporates within three to four treatments. It's really amazing. And I was like, well, you know, it was mid-April. I'm like, well, what's COVID? COVID is, you know, acute inflammation gone haywire. What if we take the laser and we laser the lung fields of patients in the hospital and see if we can't block the cytokine storm, which is basically what happens. So the laser, it creates anti-inflammatory proteins, which block the cytokine storm. So you can actually see like, for example, interleukin 10 or interleukin six, which are associated with the cytokine. You actually see the serum levels of patients. And, and then explain all, explain all these cytochromes and yeah, whatever. So cytokines are these proteins in the body. <laughs> and, and so you have pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti. So some of these cytokines get, when you have inflammation into your system, you're attacked by a virus. Cells turn into these called inflammasomes, which generate or are inflamed. They're inflamed cells. These inflamed cells have a tendency to want to make these proteins that they think are going to help the body by helping to destroy the virus. But with COVID in particular, they just go haywire and they go crazy. And it creates an environment in which your own cells in your own body are being inflamed and, and injured. And you get pulmonary swelling and you can't breathe. And then these patients are admitted to the hospital. They get mechanical ventilation. Unfortunately, many of them die. And so what, what the laser does is it generates these, these healthy proteins that block the formation of the bad proteins. And then that blocks the cytokine storm and allows the body to clear the virus. And so long story short, we took my laser, went to the institutional review board of the hospital, told them I wanted to do the study. They said, fine, but you're going to need to give us some guidance from the FDA. And I said, okay, um, I guess I'll call the FDA and and we did and why not it was, it was really <laughs> unbelievable they called me back they called us back in six hours I mean it was unbelievable That's awesome. unbelievable and then we gave them all the FDA you know all the studies that were done the laser had been FDA cleared for the lungs and so the IRB needed some help we and and six days later the FDA says yes you're a non-significant risk device my IRB says great you can use it we bring it into and the, the IRB hospital. It was a limited the, study the, the IRB internal 
Yeah. Institutional and, review and board. And they're allows, the ones who. Yes, they, they help you to, they want to make sure that you're doing a fair and equitable study for your patients and that, and they function as the FDA in your local hospital. So make sure that. And, and they make sure what you're doing is ethical and you're not ethical, just experimenting. On absolutely. hundred percent. Well said. And so we brought it in. It was a limited study. The hospital, it was in the worst time. It was mid-April. We had limited PPP, you know, PP, PPE. We got some patients done and it's taken a while the study got approved. Uh, it's peer reviewed. It's published in the Journal of Inflammation Research. It just was published last month. And uh, of the five patients that of the five patients that were treated, all five have survived. Their chest X-rays dramatically improved. Total treatment time twenty eight minutes. We did it for four days. Their chest X-rays are all remarkably better, and their their outcomes measures were all significantly better than the control group. Unfortunately, the mortality rate in the control group was forty percent. Uh, three of the patients had to go to the ICU. You know, it's a very small clinical trial, we're, and we're really hoping that this trial will help uh, to to generate interest at the center for a longer uh, or better trial. The other thing that's also been quite you know interesting or neat is that. We all know about these chronic long haulers, right? They, they have these unexplained symptoms. They have normal chest X-rays, normal CTs, normal, you know, lung testing, but yet they can't breathe and they are shortness of breath. And, you know, they can't. You're talking have, about the COVID patients. Talking. COVID patients that are long haulers. These are, these are patients that have COVID. They're no longer contagious. The virus has been cleared, but they have these unexplained symptoms that doctors are having a very hard time treating with traditional. Right. They use inhalers. They do all these things. And the patients, yeah. unfortunately, are not getting better. We've now been using the laser on these chronic long haulers. We're about ready to start another study now on the chronic patients using the laser as well. It was, and uh, just to give a, a picture to our audience, you know, I know about laser hair removal, right? So you'll like get this probe and you put it around and, you know, gets rid of your hair. Is it the same way? Like if I sprain my ankle and you, you know, move the laser probe over my ankle, you expect that swelling to go down faster? Yeah. So the laser you're talking about for hair removal, those are, are, are sort of more heat generating lasers and they're focused very close to the skin. And so the wavelengths of the lasers that are very different. Our laser is a pulsed laser. So it goes on and off like 1500 times a second. So it doesn't generate heat. So all those lasers for hair removal and for tattoos, they have to be very careful in how they're used because they can cause you know, skin problems. Our laser is a cold laser, generates no heat. It also is 20 centimeters above the patient. So the laser not, never touches the patient. And our laser penetrates four to five centimeters below the tissue. It gets into the joints, it gets into the tendons, and it works to reduce inflammation. We use it in three ways for acute injuries. So if you have sporting injuries, for example, we can get our kids back on the field in half the time. We, we use it perioperatively too. So we use the laser to reduce pain and inflammation. And then we use it for chronic conditions such as osteoarthritis and neck and back pain and Achilles tendonitis as a wonderful alternative treatment, no medications, no injections, non-surgical, and it can really help provide pain relief for patients. It's really pretty remarkable. That is amazing. Wow. Kudos to, to you. And if I need uh any type of orthopedic surgery, I definitely want that kind of treatment. Um, you, you, you have a podcast, your ortho show, and it looks like you're having a lot of fun uh, doing it. Want to tell our audience about it? Yeah. Maybe a little bit, you know, 
technical, I think, for our audience. Well, but. It really, you know, we try not to be. That's a great point, and thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. That was sort of fun things that developed out of the out of uh, the pandemic in, in my closet. I call it my master bedroom closet studio, which is where we do all the recordings. But um, we, it's really telling the stories of unique orthopedic surgeons from around the world, and we really try not to have it about techniques and things. It's more about just remarkable be human beings that have tremendous stories outside of their professional practice, but then also contributions to what they've done for patient care as well. So uh, it's really, it's a, there are 30 minutes each. Uh, and I always say, just like we had talked about, my mother has to be able to understand what you're saying if you're going to come on board. And uh, and then we pivot sometimes left and right a little bit. We'll bring in, for example, we had the, one of the group company chairman from Johnson & Johnson uh, who became a dear friend of mine, talked about his, and we talked to some medical device people and some pharma people. But it's it's fun, it, it's moving, it's inspirational, and it's really not technical. So uh, we it, it's really kind of cool. And we've been having a lot of fun doing it. And, and it looks like you're having fun doing it. And my favorite is yeah, your, the videos that you put from the operating room. Like you're like all, you know, ready to go in the operating room and you see this fancy equipment and the patient there and this, you know, intimidating looking equipment. And uh, so I bet you you're having fun in the operating room as well. Yeah, I love operating. I, I think that, you know, confidence in what you're doing, having done it for 25 years now, one of the things that I've, I always say is that I, I never want to be uncomfortable in the operating room. So if it's a surgery that I don't do routinely, or if I know someone else can do it better, I'm going to refer you to that doctor. I want to be in, I want to be relaxed, and I want to be in my comfort zone, and I want to do your surgery, have fun, and heal you, and I really enjoy the surgical process. That is great. So I think we answered Christy's question about uh, safe prescribing and orthopedic uh, surgery in so many amazing ways. I actually think you could do a course to primary care doctors on on very various uh, options because um, uh, I wasn't taking notes and all the things that you were saying, and I'd, I'd love to be able to communicate that. But at last minute advice to Christy, who's a, who works in an internal medicine setting. Yeah, Christy, what I would say to you is that, you know, we all have choices and our patients have choices too. And um, we, we try to our patients to let them know that they have options. And there are doctors all across the country now that are practicing opioid sparing uh, techniques. And it's actually a marketing tool now for many doctors because patients are so concerned about that. So, so the bottom line is you have choices. Seek out a doctor that cares about opioid sparing techniques that can safely and effectively through your surgery without getting you addicted to opioids. That's nice. And I want to say thank you to Christy for your question and for your work on safe prescribing, for being a model to nurse practitioners and the health community at large. And I want to thank you, Dr. Scott Sigmund. Thank you for your leadership in opioid sparing surgery and innovations in orthopedics and just being a fun, cool, competent orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> It was a pleasure, you know, meeting you, Ronit, when we were did, did our course together. I knew we would remain friends and share your passion and leadership uh, across the healthcare world. And you're doing an amazing job. And thank you very much for including me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF. Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs.
Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Mm-hmm.